0: That uh, hopefully it says something about pride and proclamation on it. It is uh, we're going to do all of Daniel four today. It's a very long chapter thirty seven. Uh, verses. So we're going to read it as we go through it because uh, it's about three pages long, uh, single spaced here for me. Um, So we're going to read that as we go through. But let's uh, open up with a word of prayer first. Heavenly Father, once again, we've come to your word. We're excited to read this story. We know this is your inspired truth. We ask by uh, the power of your Holy Spirit that you would enable us to learn from the prophet Daniel and from the confession of King Nebuchadnezzar. By it, show us your great sovereignty and show us your great mercy. And may you teach us our deep need for repentance. Do this in and for each one of us this morning. In Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Amen. They have to be honest with me. Don't you just hate those glowing family newsletters you get every year before, right around Christmas time, you know, during the holidays? You know, the ones that sound like this. It's been a great year for the lamplighters. Greg had been hoping for a promotion, but what a surprise when the CEO came to his desk and begged him to take over the company. The whole office chipped in and gave the family a week in Paris to celebrate. (laughs) Wasn't that nice? Of course, Jeannie has been busy as well. You probably saw that news item, how she rescued a school bus full of children from a kidnapper armed only with a plastic comb. Nice to think, too, the poem she wrote for last year's holiday letter is going to be chiseled into the wall of the Library of Congress. (laughs) The twins did so well at the state tap dance championship that Spielberg is crafting a movie around them, while Greg Jr.'s science fair project was the topic of much excitement in the New England Journal of Medicine. (laughs) And when I get Christmas letters like that, I want to take the lamplighter's perfect little family picture and set it on fire and then stomp on the ashes. (laughs) Why? Why is that? Pride. Pride, not just the uh, uh, lamplighters' pride in their achievements. The Lord will deal with them or not as he sees fit. No, my response to the letter reveals uh, the pride within my own heart. Pride inherently compares our own achievements and rewards to those of others around us. It it boasts if we've achieved greater recognition than others, and it sulks if we've done less or been passed over. And its very nature, pride has to be cleverer than someone else. I'm not sure cleverer is a word, but it's working for me or it has to be more attractive than someone else, or wealthier than someone else, or be a better cook, a faster runner, a more skillful gardener, or whatever. Pride is never satisfied in what's been accomplished because its essence lies in defeating others, in being better than others, never in the achievement itself. And the Lamplighter's letter makes me feel like a hopeless underachiever, And so it challenges my pride. Pride's one of the few sins that's almost uh, universally recognized as being wrong. Uh, Our society has taken most of the other sins, particularly the seven deadly sins, and sort of said they're not a sin anymore, and some of them have even turned into a virtue. But most people still think that pride goes before a fall. And... uh, Even people who don't uh, call themselves religious find pride to be offensive. And yet at the same time, there are very few people who are able to recognize the sin of pride within themselves. It's a sin that's very easy to see in other people. And of course, we're all talented at confessing other sins. Um, but it deceptively slides into our own hearts undetected. However, in God's grace and mercy, He sometimes uses life's difficult experiences to remove the blinders from our eyes and show us what our hearts really contain. And He exposes and confounds our pride in order to transform us from the inside out. And Daniel chapter 4. It's about one such journey from pride to humility. And so with that in mind, let's continue our study of the book of Daniel. We're in chapter 4, and here we find ourselves beginning at the end. Verses 1 through 3. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion endures from generation to generation. The narrative actually begins at the end of the story uh, with a letter of praise to God that Nebuchadnezzar wrote after his recovery. The letter is addressed to Peoples, nations, and languages, the same group, summoned to bow down to the golden image back in chapter 3. And the signs and wonders the Lord has performed certainly include the fiery furnace. Yet the key difference is now that Nebuchadnezzar speaks of signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. Far uh, from being a persecutor of the faith, Nebuchadnezzar has now become a witness to the faith. And so he starts this off by saying, uh, here's the truth. Now let me tell you how this happened, how it came about. And so it's sort of a time-honored way of, of telling a story is by beginning at the end. Well, there is a dramatic shift in the life of Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful man in the world at the time. And it's as dramatic a transformation Uh, As in the New Testament, when we see Saul, who is the persecuting Pharisee, become Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles. Both cases, the change was not brought about by merely seeing the power of God. Saul saw the Lord's grace sustain Stephen through his violent death in Acts 8. And Nebuchadnezzar saw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego emerge unharmed from the fiery furnace in Daniel 3. Yet neither man was converted by that experience, just because they saw God's grace. They saw the power of God. Miraculous demonstrations of God's power can get people to stop and think, but true conversion is normally accomplished through a personal experience of God's grace. And that personal experience in Nebuchadnezzar's life is what we see here in Daniel 4. In Nebuchadnezzar's case, the transformation requires literally the stripping away of everything in which he gloried. Nebuchadnezzar uh, was literally the Lord of all that he surveyed. I mean, can you imagine reading Nebuchadnezzar's annual holiday letter? You know, I built the hanging gardens of Babylon. You know, it's kind of, wow, make the lamplighter's letter seem trivial, by comparison. And yet it's precisely this situation of great prosperity that's an obstacle to the work of God in his life and which has to be addressed if his heart is going to be changed. And that's an important point for us to recognize in our own lives. Discontent, disaster, discomfort are often the precursors to real spiritual growth. And as long as we're pretty comfortable, we're usually not uh, very willing to examine our own hearts. On the other hand, when God disturbs the calm waters of our life, then we're more ready to seek out change. And for most people, that comes when our career hopes are dashed, uh, when a serious relationship gets shredded, when the doctor announces that he has bad news. And it's then that we get serious about spiritual things. And if that's true, and I think it is, I think it suggests that we should approach the troubling times of our life with a far more positive outlook than we normally do. Because the difficult experiences of life should give us an expectation that God is doing something in our life, even if we can't see what it is at the time. So let's see how that happens in Nebuchadnezzar's life. Once again, he has a dream. We saw he had a dream back in Daniel 2. He has another dream. Once again, he finds this dream to be terrifying. So, what was it? Let's see the dream explained here in verse 4. He says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. Everything's good. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they may uh, make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last, Daniel came in before me, he who was named Belshazzar after the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, O Belshazzar, chief of the magicians, <clears throat> because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these, I saw, and behold, a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. We have a tree on the banner over there that uh, Louise did for us. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. So this is a really big tree. Its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heaven lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves, and scatter its fruit, let the beasts flee from under it, and the birds from its branches. But leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him and let seven periods of time pass over him. This sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets it over the lowliest of men. This dream I, Nebuchadnezzar, saw, and you, O Belshazzar, tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. So, when was the last time you had a dream like that? If you remember the context, he's already had one dream. And he didn't like it. He had it in chapter 2. And he dreamed of a statue and he was the head of gold. But his kingdom passes away and other kingdoms come. So in chapter 3, he makes his own statue of all gold saying... I am the king. My kingdom is not going to pass away. And so now we have another dream, and God's coming back and saying, you're really not getting it. Okay? There's God and kings, and one works for the other, and it's not you. And so he has this dream, and the first challenge from the Lord is directed, I think, at this contentedness that he feels. Verse 4, he said, I was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. And so God sends a dream of a toppled tree. And since he's not all that excited about the last dream God gave him, he's even less excited about this one. The text says, verse 5, that he's afraid and alarmed add that uh, to his frustration that once again, verse 7, the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers are unable to interpret the dream for him. And so he turns to Daniel. Now you would have thought he'd have learned from the last time and gone to Daniel first. But he didn't. He calls in all the enchanters and magicians and all these people and they say, wow, it's a dream about a tree. I have no clue. And so... That's sort of a paraphrase. And he calls in Daniel and he says, verse 9 I know the spirit of the holy gods is in you. No mystery is too difficult for you. Tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. And he really trusts Daniel. Because he goes through, he gets the whole dream laid out, and then at the end he says, and you, O Belshazzar, which is his Babylonian, Daniel's Babylonian name, says, tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. We're not going to spend a lot of time on the dream itself, but we're going to move right in to the dream interpreted, verses 19 through 26. 26. And Daniel is going to uh, interpret this for us, starting in verse 19. Then Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belshazzar answered and said, my lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. So right now, you know, this is not a good dream, okay? Because he's saying, I wish this was for your enemies. I wish this was for people who hate you. I really wish this dream wasn't for you. So you kind of get your guard up right away here. And he says, verse 20, The tree you saw, which grew and became strong, so its top reached to the heaven, was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves are beautiful, as fruit abundant, which food for all under which the beasts of the field found shade, and in whose branches the birds of the heaven lived. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven, and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it. But leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze, in the tender grass of the field, and let him be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts of the field, till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the King, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven. And seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. And so in his interpretation, Daniel provides the key to the dream. The enormous tree represents Nebuchadnezzar himself. So far, so good. Nebuchadnezzar would have been quite pleased to see himself in the role of this cosmic tree, the center of the universe. And as with his earlier dream in Daniel 2, where he was the head of gold, this dream acknowledges Nebuchadnezzar's great power and might. Verse 22, it is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to the heavens, and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And yet he doesn't stop there. And this image of the tree has a dark side as well. Now this description of the tree, reaching the heaven, reminds us once again, there's lots of repetition in Daniel. And either because those Daniel was speaking to uh, then were slow learners or the people reading him 2,600 years later are one of those. Anyway, we're reminded that once again... Uh, we have this uh, reminder of the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. something that is made that uh, top reaches up into the heavens, and usually represents some act of tremendous pride, and usually it results in some disaster. And this dream of the tree is no exception. In this case, the image of the tree itself suggests the appropriate metaphor for its downfall. The divine lumberjack is going to bring the mighty tree crashing to the ground, removing it from its place of influence and glory. And so Nebuchadnezzar not only loses his power and his glory, but he loses his rationality, that which makes him, distinguishes him as human. And he behaves like the wild animals. Verse 25. You'll be driven from among men. Your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox. And the one who thought of himself in godlike terms would become a beast-like so he could learn that he's merely human after all. However, when the trees cut down, The stump and the roots are allowed to remain. Therefore, you have the hope of new growth emerging from the stump. So, too, God's act of judgment on Nebuchadnezzar is not final. Verse 26. As it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Nebuchadnezzar would experience a full period of judgment in this animal-like state until the time was complete whatever that time was. Some people think it was seven years. Some think it was seven uh, moons. Uh, it doesn't say. The text just says seven times. <clears throat> and yet, at some point, that time is complete, and Nebuchadnezzar acknowledged that heaven rules, that God is in charge of the universe, and he is not, and then his kingdom would be restored to him. But there's an interesting verse right in the middle of this passage that shows that Nebuchadnezzar's fate is not inevitable. And that's verse 27. And there we see a call for repentance. Verse 27. Daniel says, Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness. And your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. And the purpose of the dream is to provide Nebuchadnezzar with a warning so that he might repent of his pride, of putting himself in God's place. And he can then demonstrate his repentance by doing what is right and by showing mercy to the oppressed. And if Nebuchadnezzar humbles himself, then God wouldn't have to humble him. If he doesn't repent, however, then he's going to find out who's really in control of the universe. And in the same way, God sometimes presses in on our hearts the likely outcome of our present course. And often it's not very pretty. And as a pastor, there's nothing more sobering than to see people shipwreck their lives due to their own ego and their own pride. And that can lead to moral failure, spiritual failure, and all of the more common idolatries related to wealth and materialism. And that brings me up short and challenges my pride because I know I'm no better than they are, and it's only God's grace that keeps me from going down the same road. Sometimes you say things or think things that even shock yourself. Like, where did that come from? And I think God's given you a glimpse of the depravity of your own heart. Perhaps you find yourself thinking something really mean about someone. Perhaps someone cuts you off in traffic and something profane just jumps out of your mouth. And right then you see the seeds of sin in your own life. And it's a warning shot across the bow, a challenge to repent and humble yourself before the Lord while there's still time asking for help and strength to keep you faithful. Sadly, the warning of the dream, this call to repentance, here in verse 27, goes unheeded by Nebuchadnezzar. A whole year goes by, during which he had plenty of opportunities to live differently. Instead, he misunderstands God's merciful delay of judgment as a sign that the warning can be ignored. And therefore, the judgment of God comes upon him, and we see the dream fulfilled. Verse 28, the dream fulfilled. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. The king answered and said, "'Is not this great Babylon, "'which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence "'and for the glory of my majesty?' He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox. His body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagles' feathers and his nails were like birds' claws. So we have these boastful words in verse 30. Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty... And those words are barely out of his mouth when the sentence of judgment is announced from heaven. Nebuchadnezzar lost his, uh, lost his power. He loses his position. He's driven out of Babylon, and his humanity is taken away. He's eating grass. He's living out in the wild like the beasts of the field. And there's lots of people who tried to figure out what mental illness uh, Nebuchadnezzar suffered from. But I think that's really not the point of the story, of the text. It's far more interested in this unique inhumanity of Nebuchadnezzar's condition. This condition is, after all, a direct judgment of God and not a naturally occurring disease. Finally, so he goes this, we don't know how long, maybe seven years. It just says, Uh, until uh, seven periods of time have passed over. And at the end of this appointed time, Nebuchadnezzar raises his eyes to heaven, and the story ends with the humility of restoration. The humility of restoration. You might say it's the restoration of humility. It works either way. Verse 34. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven... At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are right, and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. Notice that when God's judgment came upon Nebuchadnezzar, he was looking down at everyone else. He was basically at the top of his palace looking down over his city. And when the judgment is lifted, he lifts his eyes up towards heaven. And this happened because his pride is stripped away along with all of his achievements and all of his possessions until he came to recognize that whatever he had and whatever he did before was a gift of God who can exalt the lowliest of men and can bring down the mightiest of men. At the end of God's appointed time of judgment, Nebuchadnezzar raises his eyes to heaven and his reason is restored. Once brought low by God, he's brought back and restored to control of his kingdom, demonstrating that the Lord is able both to humble the proud and exalt the humble. So he praises God, verse 34. Blessed, uh, he blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever for his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. And the chapter ends with verse 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of Heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just. And this becomes Nebuchadnezzar's own confession of faith And the God of heaven. And it's the last word we hear from him in the Bible. The last thing we hear from Nebuchadnezzar in the whole Bible is to praise and extol and honor the God of heaven. The great and mighty persecutor of Israel, the destroyer of Jerusalem, is humbled by God's grace and brought to confess God's mercy. And God used Daniel's faithfulness to bring light to this Gentile. His personal experience showcases God's power. And if someone like Nebuchadnezzar can be humbled and then restored, then surely no one is beyond the reach of God's grace. Once again, there's a final note here that we can't afford to miss in all of this. And that's a reminder that God uses suffering and redemption. First of all, this is an important message for Israel to hear. For the imagery of the tree reduced to a stub speaks to their situation just as much as it does to Nebuchadnezzar's. When the prophet Isaiah was called to preach judgment to the people of Israel, you remember what he said? He, he, he says, how long, O Lord? And When do I get to bring the good news? And God answers him. And this judgment was exactly what came upon the people of Israel in Daniel's day. Israel itself was a tree that had been cut down until only a stump remained. Yet that meant that Nebuchadnezzar's experience could also be a source of hope for Israel. If Nebuchadnezzar could be forgiven and restored when he humbled himself and looked to heaven, then Israel could be forgiven and restored if they humble themselves and look to heaven. If in the midst of the devastation of the exile, they took this lesson to heart and they humble themselves before God, then they could expect to experience his grace and mercy once more. And the same reality is true for us as well. The gospel is a humbling message. The only way for us to enter the kingdom of heaven is with empty hands, lifting our eyes to heaven and confessing our awful sins and our desperate need for a savior. And by nature, that's hard for us to admit because we want to say with Nebuchadnezzar, to paraphrase verse 30, is is this not a great house which I have built by my power as my residence and for the glory of myself? We're all inclined to believe the world revolves around us. And some of us trust in our achievements, and we really have achieved some things. And some of us trust in our own righteousness because compared to others, uh, we look virtuous and noble. But we can only receive the gospel when we stop comparing ourselves with others and recognize that before a perfectly holy God, even our greatest achievements merely increase our condemnation. When we stand in front of God, our problem is not just our weaknesses and our failures, but it's also our successes and our strengths because these lead us to take pride in ourselves. Our goodness itself can be an obstacle to receiving the message of the gospel because in our pride, we don't see our need for God. And to cure us of our deadly pride, God may graciously bring us to disaster. And we find that it's only when we commit a sin that we thought we would never commit. That God is showing us the depravity that lurks within our hearts. And as painful as that may be, if it leads us to repentance, then it's a work of God's grace. Sometimes we have to ask God to show us our sin and then we're horrified when we actually see it. I mean, the worst thing that could happen is for God to leave us comfortable in our pride. I mean, without the pigsty, the prodigal wouldn't have ever made it home. And so humiliation, weakness, failure, sin, if it leads to repentance... It can be the means by which God brings about transformation in your life and give you a fresh understanding of the gospel. Nebuchadnezzar simply looked to God's grace to restore him, not based on anything that was in him, not even on his newfound humility, but his hope is simply in God's mercy. But why does God exalt the humble? We understand when he humbles the proud. The Nebuchadnezzars deserve what they get. The lamplighters need to be taken down a peg or two or ten. But why does God exalt the humble? Why did they receive God's grace? And to answer that question, we need to consider another king who is brought from the height to the depths. He didn't create one of the seven wonders of the world. He created the world itself out of nothing. <laughs> And even though he was in very nature God, he humbled himself and made himself man. And he left the glories of heaven and came to dwell among us, a step downward at least as large as that of Nebuchadnezzar. And the king took on the form of a servant, and he touched lepers and healed the sick and preached to the poor and washed the dirty, stinky, smelly feet of other people. And he carried this servant's form all the way to the cross where even though he didn't do anything wrong, he died a criminal's death. What more humbling experience can there be than for the living God to die? And yet this king's humbling was not forced on him because of his pride, but it was a voluntary choice on his part to save us from our pride. And this humble king is named Jesus. And his time of humiliation is over, and now he's exalted in glory. And now he's accomplished our salvation, and is at the Father's side. And now he's the one to whom worship is directed. And that's why the humble are exalted. Not because their humility deserves it, because instead of looking at themselves, their eyes are fixed on Jesus, who once was humbled, but is now glorified. And looking to Jesus, the king of heaven is the answer for our pride. How can we exalt ourselves and sing our own praises when our eyes are fixed on Jesus? And what's more, the scars that remain visible in his hands and feet as the lamb that was slain constantly remind us of their cause, which is our depravity. And so in view of the incredible mercy that we've received, How can we boast in anything other than the cross of Christ? And as we contemplate Christ, we're reminded over and over again that the only thing we contribute to our salvation is our sin. Yet at the same time, we're reminded that as foul as we are, we're more loved and more accepted and more forgiven than we could ever dare hope for. So take your eyes off yourself and your own self-righteousness and take your eyes off yourself and your own self-condemnation. Instead, lift your eyes to heaven and look to Christ, the author and perfecter of your faith, the humbled and now exalted King. His death and resurrection are the means by which you're restored to your senses and made fit to stand in his presence now and forever. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and I'll close. (laughs) Heavenly Father, thank you for the humility of the Lord Jesus Christ. As we continue to study Daniel over these next few months, we pray you would enable us to know and believe in your gracious sovereignty. Thank you for pursuing us until we bow to your love and your mercy. Help us to fix our eyes on the exalted Savior, Jesus Christ, for we ask for it in his name and his glory. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and close with the words from Romans 11.